I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 19. Uh, we're going to speak tonight on the execution of Jesus. Um, the theme of the book of uh, John, the Gospel of John, is that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's it's nowhere seen more clearly than in the 19th chapter. Uh, not that you can't see it in other places, but it's uh, it's certainly borne out in the 19th chapter of John's Gospel, because John comes at it from uh, uh, comes at the the events surrounding Jesus' uh, sentencing uh, in a much different way than any of the other gospel writers. Um, John points out the uh, uh, the language that he uses, points out the um, um, well, I don't know. How, I don't know exactly what words to use. It's uh, the language that he that he uses that he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to use uh, identifies the um, uh, the illegality, uh, both where Roman law was concerned, as far as Jew and uh, also Jewish law was concerned, concerning the um, uh, the trial of Jesus, the so-called trial of Jesus. It really wasn't a trial, but uh, Jesus before Pilate. So let's start in chapter nineteen, verse one. Uh, prior to this point, Jesus has been examined by Pilate. He's asked him certain questions and Jesus has answered him. Um, he comes out in verse 38 of chapter 18 and says, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate says this again and again and again. If you put what John tells us about it, John tells us four times, I believe it is, and the other gospel writers give us one other account separate from any of these, uh, seven different times. If you put all of them together, seven different times, Pilate tells the Jews, I don't find anything to crucify this man for. I find no fault in him. So anyway, he does that in chapter 18, verse 38, and then he tries to um, uh, negotiate the release of Barabbas instead of, uh, I'm sorry, a release of Jesus uh, instead of Barabbas, but they choose Barabbas instead. So it says in chapter one or chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. The, uh, the therefore indicates that since he could not um, affect Jesus' release through negotiations, then he's making an attempt to uh, scourge Jesus. Okay, I'll beat him, and but that's as far as I'm planning for this to go, but that's not the way it went. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. The scourging that's talked about was a preliminary action prior to crucifixion. Uh, you'll see in a, a couple of verses, uh, as I said, that Pilate really didn't intend to go any further than this. He thought this would appease the Jews. But um, uh, but there were a lot of things that took place during these scourgings where some of the crucifixion, uh, well, I started to say crucifixion victims, those that were to be crucified didn't make it to the cross. They were uh, they were killed through the, uh, the scourging and the beatings. And it says, Then the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put on him a purple robe. Matthew says it was a scarlet robe. Now, the, the, obviously, the, the next verse, and they said, the soldiers said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. This word hands is the word rods. They're hitting him with rods, uh, the sticks striking him in, in the face, just as they did before um, the high priest. And um, uh, the, the thing about this, uh, the crown of thorns and the, and the robe, the purple or scarlet robe, Certainly the, the soldiers are trying to mock him because that's the, the charge that was being made, the king of the Jews. Jesus made himself to be a king. Uh, Pilate picked up on that and said, okay, well, he's the king of the Jews. You don't want me to crucify your king, do you? And so the soldiers are continuing with that, that uh, line of thought, and certainly they're mocking him. But this has a lot more to do with it than just mocking Jesus for who the Roman soldiers thought that he was. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God, uh, the curse that was pronounced upon Adam was identified or signified by thorns and thistles coming forth from the earth. 
God said, there's the, the, cursed is the ground for your sake, thorns and thistles shall it now produce for you. So this crown of thorns is typifying or representative of the curse that's placed upon Jesus. And notice that he's crowned with them. He's crowned with the curse that came upon the earth because of mankind's sin. Now, the scarlet or the purple robe, and, and I think Matthew's right because nobody was allowed to wear scarlet or, or uh, I'm sorry, nobody was allowed to wear purple because purple was the royal color. And so this would not be something that you'd pull off the rack like at any department store or a purple coat or something like that. Purple was, uh, was saved for uh, royalty exclusively. And so whatever this purple robe was, it was to signify as if it was uh, a royal robe or a royal covering. But this is signifying literally, and, I, and again, I, I'll, I'll say this again, I think Matthew is right when he called it scarlet. I think the word purple here is a poor translation because it's talking about something red. You couldn't wear purple even as a joke because it was, uh, it was forbidden. Uh, only Caesar and the, and the kings could wear, uh, uh, the, the royal family could wear uh, could wear purple. And so this scarlet robe or scarlet cloak that's put on him typifies the sins of mankind. So where the Roman soldiers are trying to mock him saying, here's the king of the Jews, literally the king of the Jews is wearing the curse that came upon man through sin and he's identified with what Isaiah 117 says, though your sins be uh, crimson as crimson, they shall be white as wool. That's what this typifies. It typifies that Jesus is now dressed in that which represents the curse of, upon all mankind, which only the death and the shedding of blood can, can procure or alleviate. So it says in verse 4, Pilate, therefore, again, there's this word, therefore. These things are important, folks. They seem like just filler words, but they're important. Every time that's talking about Pilate doing something, therefore, it's trying to make another attempt to do what he really wants to do, and that is release Jesus. Pilate, therefore, after the scourging, after he's crowned in the, the, the thorns and the, wearing the scarlet robe, Pilate, therefore, went forth again and said unto them, unto the chief priests and the Jews that were there, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If he finds no fault in him, what are you scourging for? You're going to find later on in this uh, in this chapter that Pilate says before Jesus, I'm the one that has power to either kill you or let you go. Well, think about what that means. Think about what the Jews are, re- are requiring of Pilate when they're crying out, crucifying. They're saying, we want you to commit judicial murder. And Pilate knows that. He knows this guy hadn't done anything wrong. He knows there's no reason to put Jesus to the death. And so each and every time he comes forth, he takes another step forward and he says, okay, now I'm bringing him back to you because I don't find any fault in him. He's been scourged. This should be enough. Now they pull the trump card. Now the Jews respond. In verse 6, when the chief priests therefore and others saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Now, this is, uh, I'm a little bit ahead of myself when I said they played the trump card. That's another verse or two down the way. What Pilate is doing is he's challenging them. Please realize that the Jews are um, uh, Israel, literally, Judea, is part of a province that uh, comes under Roman authority. As such, the Jews are a real problem, and that's why they keep having another procurator and no- another governor, one right after the other, because nobody can keep the Jews under control. 
Herod was the best one that they found because he was a Jew himself, and uh, but he was uh, Romanized. And, uh, and, and so it's a real big deal to keep the Jews under control. It's a real big deal to keep any riots from taking place, particularly in Judea, because it was the hot spot. It was the ghetto of, of um, uh, Rome, so to speak. It was, uh, it was the trouble area. And so Pilate is, uh, is trying not to, to create a problem. He doesn't want to riot in the streets. But at the same time, Pilate realizes he's the authority, not them. He could very easily have blown those guys off and said, get out of here. I don't want to see you. You have no business being here. There's nothing wrong with this guy. The only thing he would have risked would have been a riot in the streets. Well, he's got Roman soldiers for that. So he could have handled this in a totally different way. What I want you to see here, folks, is that although people will look at this and say, look at the divine sovereign hand of God, how God worked all this stuff out. Pilate was not forced to do anything. Everything he did, he did by choice, just like the Jews and the high priests. The chief priests weren't forced to do anything. They chose to do it. If this is something that God is forcing people to do, now hold your finger here and turn with me over. I, I really wasn't planning to get into this, but since I have, look with me over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is a, is a big verse that's used as far as sovereignty is concerned. Those that believe in the sovereignty of God. This is part of the, the disciples' prayer. And by the way, let me say, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe God, by his sovereign will, has set man up uh, with a free will and choice. That's the sovereignty of God, to give man a choice to operate under his own uh, free will. But anyway, in, uh, in Acts chapter 4, it tells us about the disciples' uh, prayer after they had been taken um, by the chief priests and the elders for getting the guy healed in Acts chapter 3. They had been beaten and threatened and so forth, and they returned to their own company. Uh, Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? He's quoting the Old Testament. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. He's talking about the crucifixion now. Notice what he says. He says, verse 27, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now, folks that believe that God's in control of everything and and he's pulling all the strings and, and that kind of stuff will use this verse of Scripture and say, See, even though it was against the Roman law, even though what the Jews were calling out for crucifixion was against the Jewish law. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Even though everything was set against it because God wanted this to happen, this is why it happened. Folks, I would submit to you two things. First of all, you can't build a doctrine off of one scripture. And even though this was planned from the foundations of the earth, that Jesus would be crucified and the crucifixion would take place both at the hands of the Gentiles and the Jews because he's dying for all of mankind, not just for Israel. That's why Pilate is such an important piece of this story. He's representative of the Gentile world. Rome was the superior power in the whole earth. They literally ruled the world, the known world at least, at, that, at the point in time that, uh, that this is taking place. So when Pilate, uh, who is Caesar's representative, Rome's representative, issues the decree and the judgment against Jesus, it's the same thing as the Gentile world condemning him to death and finding him guilty, just like the Jews did. So certainly... God preordained these things to happen. 
But there's a big difference in God knowing what's going to happen and God making things happen. Big difference between foreknowledge and foreordination. See, people that talk about predestination and the sovereignty of God are always talking about God arranging things and making them happen. Well, if that's the case, then that means God's picking and choosing who gets saved and who isn't getting saved. That means God's picking ahead of time who gets healed and who doesn't get healed. Then what's faith for? Why did Jesus say, whosoever will, let him come unto me? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whosoever will, let him open the door and I'll come in unto him. What does it matter? If God's already figured it out one way or the other, why shouldn't we just eat, drink, and be merry? Those of us that are chosen for heaven will go to heaven. Those of us that are chosen for hell, nothing we can do anyway. Might as well get the most we can out of this life. Now, folks, some people really believe like that. And as a result, they're just getting everything they can out of this life rather than serving God. What's the point? What would be the point in serving God if you have not been foreordained to hell already or to heaven already? And how many of us would be fooling ourselves by saying, well, we love God and we want to serve him because we wanted a place in eternity and, and so forth. But if we hadn't been chosen, we're wasting our time. Because, see, your choice has nothing to do with it if the sovereignty of God idea is, is solid and, and stable all the way through. But it's not. It can't be. What God talks about foreordination or what God talks about uh, uh uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God and even predestination is foreknowledge. It's like being able to see what happens ahead of time rather than control what happens ahead of time. God knew that this was the time for Jesus because this is the time when these things would take place. That's why the Bible talks about these things happening when the fullness of time was come. Over and over again, the Bible speaks of when the fullness of time came. What does that mean? That means when the situation, the conditions were right for that which God has prearranged to take place to happen. But it's still at the will of man. Does that make sense? You can't build a doctrine off of God preordaining or foreordaining Herod and Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus and send him to the cross. They had a lot to do with themselves. And John seems to be making that point in John chapter 19, particularly when it comes to the story of Pilate. So let's go back there for a little bit. Let's back up to verse 4. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto him, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. John keeps saying again to show that Pilate is trying to get out of this, but he doesn't have the courage to do what he knows he should do. He's showing that this was at the Jews' willingness, at the Jews' request, the high priest, the chief priests that are making up the mob, that are standing outside the judgment hall. They're the ones that are choosing on behalf of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God. They're choosing the fate of Jesus. And Pilate doesn't have the backbone to stand up to him. So he goes forth and, and uh, uh, again and says unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Again, he's saying he's innocent. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, behold the man. Notice how he says that. He doesn't say behold your king. He doesn't say behold this man. He says behold the man. Now here's something I want you to see in this. And that is, uh, I think I made the statement a little bit earlier. The theme of the gospel of John is that Jesus is the son of God. There is no place that this is seen more uh, evident or evidently than before Pilate, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, because through all of this thing, all of these actions and all these uh, um, things that have taken place, 
Pilate has never seen anybody operate with the dignity of Jesus. And so when he says, behold the man, he's speaking almost reverentially. Behold the man. He's innocent. I know he's innocent. You know he's innocent. But look how he comports himself. So he says, behold the man. But the Jews answered him and said, uh, or when the chief priests and officers, verse 6, saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says unto them, take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Here's him saying it again. There's nothing, there's nothing this man's guilty of. Now, Pilate is challenging them here. He says, you take him and crucify him. Now, if he's really giving them permission to crucify him, they would have grabbed Jesus and run straight to Golgotha. But they don't. They stand there and they answer him. It goes further with this debate because they know that the Jews know that Pilate is baiting them. The Jews know that Pilate is challenging them. He's literally saying, take him and crucify him if you dare. Because you don't have the authority. Only I have that. You're the ones crying out to crucify him. I don't think he deserves it. But if you think you've got the, the wherewithal, the guts to do it, you go ahead and crucify him. Now they pull out the trump card. Notice what they say. The Jews answered him and said, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. They brought him up on charges of sedition, trying to raise a riot uh, or a group of people to mob against Caesar. That flopped. They said that he was making himself a king, and when Pilate examined him himself about saying, are you a king? Do you have a kingdom and all this kind of stuff? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my people would fight. What he's saying is, I'm no threat to you or Rome. So he's already been examined on that point. So the charges that they originally brought against Jesus haven't stood. So now they say he's making himself the son of God. When Pilate heard that, when Pilate therefore heard that, verse 8, notice this. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Who's he afraid of? He's not afraid of the Jews, folks. Who's he afraid of? He's afraid of Jesus. He knows there's something about this guy. He knows there's something about this whole deal. Now, remember all the times that he's been warned. His wife warned him. She told him, don't have anything to do with this man. He's a righteous man. You know, it's an interesting thing. From the time that Jesus was taken captive and sent before Pilate, There were seven different people that were testimonies that gave testimony that Jesus was a righteous man. Pilate was one of them. Herod was one of them. When Jesus went to the cross, one of the two thieves, you know, there's one on each side. One of them said, he hasn't done anything. This man has done nothing amiss. One of the Roman soldiers that stood at the foot of the cross said, surely this man was the son of God. The other one said, this was a righteous man. Over and over again, you have people stepping up and claiming that Jesus is a righteous man, evidenced by the fact, just simply, not the things that they've seen in his his life, not the things they've heard him preach, just simply by the way he's handled himself before Pilate and and his detractors. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall and said unto Jesus, Whence art thou? Where are you from? Notice what got to Pilate. He called himself the son of God. If Pilate didn't consider that as a real possibility, he would never have talked to Jesus about it. But he he didn't even say, are you the son of God? He said, where'd you come from? He knows he's from Galilee. He knew he was from Galilee because he sent him. That's the reason why he sent him to Herod. 
hoping to get Herod to do something about it where he was off the hook. That didn't work. Herod just sent him back and said, you know, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. So he asked Jesus, he said, where are you from? Notice the last phrase of verse 9, but Jesus gave no answer. Here's the only thing that Pilate says to Jesus that he doesn't answer. Only question he asks him. Only question Pilate asks that Jesus doesn't answer. Every other time, every other situation, Jesus gives him an answer. Not this one. What's he going to say? Oh, is he going to sing, O little town of Bethlehem? That's where I'm from? What's he going to say? Now, remember when he was with the disciples just a couple of chapters ago at the Last Supper. He's real clear about coming from the Father and going back to the Father. He was openly in the temple. And on certain occasions, he claimed to be from the Father. Jews took up stones to kill him over that. By the way, let me bring something out. We're going to see this in just a few verses, but let me bring something else out. The Jews did not run to Pilate to ask if they could stone Jesus. Did they? You know what the crucifixion is about? The crucifixion is about two things. Number one, it's about the fulfillment of prophecy because God prophesied that the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb would hang upon the tree. But secondly, what we've talked about even earlier in the service is that it had to be for the Jews and the Gentiles both. For both the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews could have stoned Jesus to death at any point that they wanted to because that was in their purview. But crucifixion was not. Crucifixion was especially painful and um, a barbaric type of death that was reserved for only the, the, the most vile criminals known to the land, known in the land of that day. They don't have to ask permission to put Jesus to death. They have to ask permission to crucify him because in the Jews' mind, it's important that he die that specific type of death. Now, the high priests are behind this. Don't the high priests know that the Messiah, the one that Jesus has clearly said, I'm him? Don't they know that the prophecy is that the Messiah would hang on the cross? It's mind-boggling. How blind these guys were in some of the things that they did. But they had every opportunity to turn around. Jesus kept telling them the truth. But they ignored it over and over and over again. So, so, so Pilate said, when Jesus didn't give him an answer to, to the question, where'd you come from? Then said Pilate unto him, speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and have the power to release thee? Now notice the arrogance of Pilate. It'd be real, it'd be real easy to kind of get sympathetic about Pilate and say, well, he didn't want to do the wrong thing. But folks, the fact is, he didn't have the courage to not do the wrong thing. He didn't have the courage to stand up for what he knew was right. And he's in a position of authority. Wouldn't it be nice if that was the exception for our political and governmental leaders? Unfortunately, it's not. And so Pilate now in his arrogance says, I have the power to either let you go or to murder you. Sentence you to crucifixion, death by the cross. Why? You've said over and over again, I find no fault in him. Why would you even consider doing that? Now Jesus answers again. Notice again, the only question Jesus wouldn't answer is where'd you come from? Everything else he answered. He asked, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
He didn't deny Pilate any answers about anything except the one question, where'd you come from? Because that was for the Jews. Jesus answered and said, thou couldst have no power at all as in italics. Translators added that. You could have, you could have no power against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Now, what's the above Jesus is talking about? Or maybe a better question is, what's the above that Pilate hears about? Pilate knows that the only reason he has the position he has, he hasn't earned it, he hasn't been elected, Caesar picked him for it. And if Caesar picked him for it, he could replace him in a heartbeat. So when Jesus says, you couldn't have any power over me except it was given from you from above, is he thinking Caesar? Is he thinking, well, that's true, if Caesar... um, didn't choose me, I wouldn't be here. And he can replace me. And if I don't handle this right, he will replace me. There's all kinds of thoughts he could have like that. But notice something that Jesus says that kind of shows us where he's at. Notice Jesus says, but he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin. Can I ask you a question? What is greater sin versus lesser sin? We like to think sin, sin, isn't it? Sin is just transgressing the law of God. But notice Jesus is talking about greater sin. If there's greater sin, there's greater guilt. If there's greater guilt, there's greater punishment. Bear some thought, doesn't it? Jesus said, you could have no power against me except it were given thee from above. Jesus is talking about giving you from the Father. He's talking about God being the, the origin, the originator of all governmental authority. Governmental authority comes from God, folks. That doesn't mean everybody that's elected to office is God's choice. It's pretty obvious. But the idea of governmental authority comes from God. So he said, therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Notice the impact that this has upon Pilate. If Pilate is just thinking about Caesar and Caesar's authority, then he's going to be looking out for himself. But notice it says... And from thenceforth, from that moment, from the point that Jesus said that about having authority from above, and from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate must be convinced about something about Jesus, regarding Jesus, that makes him want to let him go, even though he knows the consequences, even though he knows the problems that could arise and that have presented themselves thus far. Then, Therefore, from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if thou not, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever make himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Folks, that tipped the scales right there. That phrase tipped the scales. Because whatever Pilate was leaning to, whatever he was thinking about Jesus, whatever he was thinking about the possibilities, maybe he is the son of God. I've sure never seen any other human being act like this. Certainly he's without fault. Certainly there's no reason for him to die. Look at the way he handled the scourging. Look at the way he's handled mock, being mocked. He didn't hide his head in humiliation or shame or anything like that. He's carrying himself like a king in the midst of this. And that's why, that's why Pilate says, behold the man. Pilate's impressed with this guy. Pilate knows Jesus, there's more to Jesus than there is to him. So he wants to let him go. But once the Jews... Pull out the Caesar issue. Pilate knows this is his future on the line. 
If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. In other words, this is not the law of the Jews or a violation of the Jewish law any longer. This is him speaking against Rome. That's not true. But the accusation was enough for Caesar to take action. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore, I'm sorry, not Caesar, for Pilate to take action. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, behold, your king. Now, there's been some controversy and there is some controversy about this, the preparation of the Passover. If you remember, the Last Supper was the Passover meal. And that was the night before. So. Why is it saying it's the preparation for the Passover? Well, the answer is found, and a lot of people get upset about things that they just don't study out. In Numbers chapter um, 28, let me read to you where the the Passover meal was um, instituted as part of the Jewish ritual. Let's see, Numbers chapter 28, verse 16, and it says, In the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. That's talking about the Passover meal. Verse 17 says, and in the 15th day of this month is the feast. So there's a Passover meal and a Passover feast. Uh, Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. The feast of unleavened bread is also called the Passover. It's not the Passover meal. It's the Passover feast. Matthew or Mark chapter 15, verse 42, I think it is, talks about the day of preparation being the day before the Sabbath. So where it's talking about the preparation of the Passover, it's talking about the Sabbath day in the Passover week or the feast of the unleavened bread. And about the sixth hour is not talking about the time of day. It's talking about the number of hours they've been preparing food for the next day, the Sabbath day, when they can't fix anything according to Jewish law. So it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, shall I crucify your king? Notice Pilate's resistance all the way. He's doing everything he can to try to talk them out of this. He's trying to to negotiate with them, mediate between them in some way or another to appease them. That's the reason he had Jesus beaten, scourged. But nothing's going to satisfy these guys until Jesus' blood is spilled on the cross. So he says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered and said, please notice this phrase, the chief priest Answered. Who are the chief priests? The chief priests are the representatives of the people before God. So when they say this on behalf of the people, they're speaking this to God. They're saying it to Pilate, but God's hearing what they're saying. We have no king but Caesar. Folks, that was the end of Judaism. That statement was the end of Judaism. Now, by that, I don't mean there's no such thing as Judaism today. There is. But as far as God was concerned, this was the end of the Jews being his people in this respect. They are making a declaration that they have no king. In other words, all this stuff about the Messiah now, uh, looking for the Messiah and the Passover meal and the, the, the cup of Elijah and all this kind of stuff where they're thinking that the Messiah is still going to come and set up an earthly kingdom and so forth. Uh, which is a part of Judaism. I mean, it's not a, it's not, there's not too many practicing Jews anymore, but it's still a part of Judaism. All oh, that's a bunch of bunk because they have already identified themselves as their king being government. Keep that in mind. You're going to see a phrase down used in a couple of verses that is never used before or since in scripture. Then 
when they cry out, we have no king but Caesar, then delivered he, Pilate delivered him, Jesus, therefore to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Please notice that the Jews are the ones that crucified Jesus. Pilate just gave consent for it. The Roman soldiers went along to fulfill the wishes of the Jews. The chief, Literally, when I say the Jews, I'm talking about the chief priests. But the chief priests were the ones that put Jesus to death. Pilate just gave the sentence. He just executed the sentence or delivered the, the judgment, which was the sentence of death. But the Jews are the ones that took him to Golgotha. Then delivered he them, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Now, Luke, who was a Gentile, calls the place Calvary. He uses the Greek name and calls it Calvary. John uses the Hebrew name. John, being a Hebrew, uses the Hebrew name and calls it Golgotha. Um, There's a lot of things that are missing here that John omits. One of the things that that John omits is... uh, um, Jesus carrying his cross, stumbling, Simon the Cyrene, Cyrene, however you say it, carried the cross, was compelled to carry the cross and those kind of things. John doesn't get any of the, into those details because this is not about the humanity of Jesus on the way to the cross. This is about the Son of God being executed. It continues the narrative. Verse 18, where they crucified him and the two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the middle. John doesn't tell us anything about the conversation between Jesus and the two thieves. He omits this. Again, it's not a matter of anything except Jesus being the Son of God. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place whereon Jesus was crucified was nigh or near to the city. It's outside the city on the northern wall. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Now, notice verse 21. You remember I said in verse 15 where the chief priests answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. That was the end of Judaism as far as God was concerned. Notice verse 21. Then said the chief priests of the Jews. Notice what the Holy Spirit inspires John to write. He said, then said the chief priests of the Jews. They're not chief priests of God anymore. They're chief priests as far as the Jews are concerned. But as far as God's concerned, they've already declared they have no king but Caesar. Their king is government, not God. So they're not his representatives any longer. Then said the chief priest of the Jews, of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This is the only time Pilate stands up for himself. Every other place, he's pushed back and forth. He doesn't want to do this, but he does it anyway. He wants to do that, but he can't do that. This is the only place where he stands up and says, no, what I've written is going to stand. I guess this is the only thing that he figures out or figures that uh, that he's not going to get in trouble for. Who's going to hold him accountable for that, you know? Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Then said they among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Let me give you a list of things that uh, that only John tells us about. 
John alone records Jesus' words to Pilate about him being about his kingdom. This is chapter 18, verse 36. Only John tells us about Jesus coming into the world to bear witness unto the truth. Chapter 18, verse 37. About Pilate having no power to crucify him except what God gave him. That's chapter 19, verse 11. John alone makes mention of his seamless robe. This is chapter 19, verse 23. His legs not being broken, which is chapter 19, verse 33. And the blood and water which came from his pierced side. Those are things that only John tells us in the other Gospels don't. John omits the awful cry on the cross, Why hast thou forsaken me? And in his place gives the triumphant, It is finished. John says nothing about him being numbered with the transgressors, but does tell us of him being with the rich in his death. John only alone mentions the costly spices which Nicodemus brought for the burial of Jesus. It's like, well, it's not like this, it is this. John knew that these other three Gospels were out there. He was very familiar with them. He's read them. He knows what information is there. And he knows what the Holy Ghost is impressing him or is prompting him to write. And so he stays directly on theme. And that theme is that Jesus is the Son of God. The other things are, are interesting details. But they don't do anything to add to the story of the execution of Jesus and the way that he handled himself as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords standing before his accusers. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. There are five people that are standing near the the cross. These four women, three of them named Mary, which means bitterness. And John, four women and a man. Now, Matthew tells us that there was a great multitude that were further away. But John tells us gives us the specific information that these four, these five people were the only ones that were standing near the cross. It wasn't like there was a big crowd, folks. There might have been people on the hillsides watching or, or stuff like that, looking from afar. But there was nobody close by of Jesus' disciples except these four women and John, who was a teenager. I guess John, people looked at John and figured out he's no threat, young kid like this. By the way, uh, Cleophas says Mary was the wife of Cleophas. Cleophas is, uh, is mentioned in um, Luke chapter 24 as one of the two disciples that meet Jesus after his resurrection on the road to, of, road to Emmaus. We don't know who Cleophas was. His, uh, that name is not used to identify anybody else. He was a disciple of Jesus. But this is his wife that's there at the foot of the cross. I wonder where he was. So these four, uh, four people along with John are standing there. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, verse 26, and the disciple standing by whom he loved, that's John talking about himself, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Two places that Jesus called Mary woman, one was in the, the first miracle that he performed at the, at the wedding feast of Cana. Woman, what do I have to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. And now at the cross where he says, Woman, behold thy son. Now, the reason that he does this in this case uh, well, the same thing is true in, um, to, in a measure in uh, John chapter 2 with the wedding face of Cana. Because Jesus is not identifying with her as his mother, he's separating himself because of the work that he has to do. Here on the cross, he's breaking all earthly ties. He's literally saying to Mary, I'm not your son anymore. Now, that sounds hurtful if you think about it from a, from a human emotional standpoint. But what Jesus is saying is, I was in your care, you raised me, you nurtured me while I was here on the earth, but now I've got a greater work to do, and I'm not rising from the dead as your son. 
I'm rising from the dead as the resurrected Lord and Savior of the world. But one thing it does show is his desire to honor his mother. Joseph must be dead. We don't have any information about him in the Gospels. So he must have died when Jesus was younger. But we see that he's honoring his mother and seeing after her care as one of the last things that he does. There are seven things that Jesus says on the cross, and John gives us uh, the last three of them. The other, two, the other three Gospels give us the first four. John gives us the last three. So Jesus says, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't look at John and say, Would you take care of my mom? Instead, he looks at his mom and he says, Woman, behold your son. That's your son from now on. And then he says to John, That's your mother. And from that very hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with, hyssop, with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 27. Because, again, people that, that don't really study things out think that there's a discrepancy in scripture. Matthew chapter 27 in verse 33. I'm going to start in verse 33. It says, And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mixed with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, vinegar mixed with gall, vinegar, whenever the word vinegar is used in, uh, particularly in the Gospels, I don't think it's used any other time in the New Testament. But in the Gospels where it's used, vinegar is sour wine. Now, uh, without taking a lot of time to go into it, sour wine just means wine that's not filtered, filtered out. There are historical writings that tell us that there's a difference between sweet wine and sour wine. As far as the Bible was concerned, as far as the, the, the history of the day was concerned, sweet wine was wine that was filtered in such a way that there was very little alcoholic content, if any. Plenty, uh, two historians, Pliny and uh, uh, Cormella, Cormelia, something like that. I'm not sure what the names are. But, uh, but they both identify, not from a biblical context, but they identify the preservation methods of wine and the making methods of wine and stuff like that. And they both identify that the sweetest wine was the wine that had no alcoholic content. Now, the Greek word that's used for wine in the New Testament, it makes no distinction between grape juice and wine. So you remember, for example, we've talked about, mentioned this a little bit earlier in uh, John chapter 2, where it talks about Jesus the, uh, at the wedding feast of Cana, where he turned the water into wine. You remember that um, the governor of the feast, after he had tasted it, came to, to, uh, to um, Mary and Jesus Mary was in charge of it in some way, I guess. And so anyway, they were talking about it, and they said, most people save, uh, most people use the best wine first, and then after everybody is drunk, they use the worst wine, but you use the best wine for last. You save the best wine for last. Now, what is he saying? I know a lot of people try to use this as reasons and excuses and justification for drinking and stuff like that, but what is he saying? Wow, this wine you delivered really knocked me on my butt. Woo! Does anybody really think that? I, I know nobody stops and thinks about it. But what is he saying? He's saying you delivered the sweet wine last. What does that mean? That means the sweeter the wine, the less the alcoholic content. And they kept filtering in, such, in, in some cases to such a degree, according to the historians, not according to the Bible, but according to the historians, they kept filtering it to such a degree that there was no alcoholic content left in it. And that was the wine that they could store the longest. 
the one that had no alcoholic content. Sour wine was that which had been filtered less. Here where it talks about when they offer Jesus vinegar mixed with gall, gall was a deadening agent. It was something they would give to people to go on the cross that would deaden their senses so that they could uh, last longer. It was a sadistic thing. It wasn't for the benefit of the victim, the, the person being crucified. It was for a sadistic thing for the par- on the part of the Romans so they could see the death prolonged. And notice in verse uh, in chapter 27 of Matthew in verse 34, he said that it says that he would not drink. Uh, verse, let's start in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthia, or whatever, however you say that. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? (laughs) Isn't it funny for me to try to read Greek? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calls for Elijah. That's who Elias is. And straightway, verse 48, and straightway they took a sponge, they ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. So there was two times that they tried to offer him something to drink. The first one with the deadening agent, he would not take. John doesn't tell us about that. But at the end, which is a fulfillment of Scripture, it says... um, Where am I? Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. The reason he said it was to fulfill the scripture. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, that's sour wine, and they dipped a sponge with vinegar, filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon a hyssop and put it to his mouth. But when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Now, the reason he did that is because the Old Testament says they offered me vinegar to quench my thirst. So he's fulfilling the scripture. One of the, think about this. Jesus on the cross is still thinking about, okay, there's one last thing I need to do. I need to say I'm thirsty so that they can give me vinegar. He was so committed to the word of God. And who knows the agony that the guy was in, yet he's thinking, okay, what's left? Okay, right, vinegar, vinegar. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, wars have been fought in church circles about what was finished. So stop and think for a minute. What was finished? You can't say the plan of redemption was finished because the plan of redemption didn't, wasn't complete until Jesus was raised from the dead. You can't say Jesus' sacrifice was finished because the sacrifice that uh, that was finished on the cross was only the physical part of it, not the spiritual part, the price that he paid for the three days in the belly of the earth, literally in the pit of hell. So what was finished? If salvation wasn't finished, if redemption wasn't finished, if the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't finished, what was finished? The Jewish law. That's the only thing it could be, folks. He's saying the law of Moses has been fulfilled. It's done. From that point forward, remember what Paul's problem was with the Jews throughout his whole ministry? They're trying to get people to keep keep following the law of Moses, and Paul keeps saying the law of Moses is nothing. There are principles in the law of Moses that are still uh, applicable where God is concerned and God's character and nature are concerned, but the law of Moses has no effect upon anybody anymore. This is where it ended. Jesus said, it's finished. And he bowed bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation the day before Sabbath, in other words, 
that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high or a holy day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out there, came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and know, he knoweth that he saith true that you might believe. In other words, John saying, I was close enough to watch this. Now, studies have been done on the, on the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, and, uh, and I, I don't know how accurate they are. I guess you'd have to be a medical doctor or have some medical knowledge to know, and I don't. But uh, I've seen it said or read that it has been uh, uh, written, documented, researched, whatever, that, um, that the only reason that would cause blood and water to come out of Jesus' side, it doesn't say they pierced his heart. It says they pierced his side. And the only thing that would cause that would be for his heart to have ruptured. And it sounds real nice and gives you warm fuzzy feelings to say Jesus died of a broken heart, meaning a ruptured heart. Now, whether that has any bearing on our salvation or not, I, I don't know. But John seems to find it important enough to say, I saw the blood and water come out, which is fulfillment of Scripture as well, or prophecy. For these things which were, these things were done, verse 36, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And another Scripture, again another Scripture said, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, meaning the chief priests, the ones that just put Jesus to death, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. In other words, he gave him permission. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. That's the only thing we ever know Nicodemus by is the guy that came to Jesus by night in chapter 3, John chapter 3. And he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. That's a very costly um, gift, or I guess it would be called a gift. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now the place where he was crucified, the, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day. And again, it's still the day before the Passover, or I'm sorry, before the Sabbath. For the sepulcher was nigh or near at hand. Now, folks, I know there's a lot of just general information about this. Remember, John's telling the story. He's saying, let me tell you about my friend Jesus, who was the Son of God. It's written in common language. He's not trying to dazzle us with new information, although he does give us details that nobody else does. But over and over again, he is showing that Jesus is the Son of God. Time and time again, with the information that he gives, he's prompted by the Holy Ghost. It's like, um, uh, wouldn't it be nice to sit to, to the side of somebody that was being inspired by the Holy Ghost to write something that, that would make the canon of Scripture? Because then we would have some information on how it works. I've always wondered about that. What does that mean? Does that mean that God just put something in their mind or, to write and... and, and uh, you know, there's this occult stuff that's called auto writing where supposedly some spirit takes over the body of the person and they just write automatically. I, don't, I certainly don't believe that was it. But how does it work? Is the Holy Ghost giving them word for word? Is the Spirit of God prompting them? 
letter by letter. That's how the first five books of the Bible were written. Moses said specifically, it's a historical record, historical fact that Moses said that it was dictated. The first five books called the Pentateuch were dictated by God to him letter for letter. Is that how this was? I don't think so. But right on the other hand, there's a theme and there's a narrative that John was so faithful to follow. I marvel at the supernatural nature of the of the word of God. This book that you're holding. I don't mean the pages are holy. But what the pages convey is. It is such a supernatural book. And it's a supernatural story. This supernatural story was about a God that loved you enough to send his only begotten son. Interesting that John doesn't tell us the horrors of the beatings. He doesn't tell us the horrors of Jesus on the cross, the agony that he suffered. Doesn't go into any of those things because Jesus was the son of God. In John's narrative, he was the son of God, not the son of man who was suffering as a human. Which makes his resurrection even more spectacular. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being faithful to to finish the plan of God. Father, you took care of every detail. You took care of every detail so that words that were spoken thousands of years before came to pass. And not by accident. The smallest detail was covered. Yet, Father, we sometimes wonder, do you even know what our situation is? We thank you for the life of Jesus that gives us an example to follow and reveals your character and your nature. We thank you for the death of Jesus, which provided for us eternal life. But most of all, Father, I thank you for the resurrection of Jesus which enables us to know him and not just know a story of a man who died, but to know him as alive in us, to know him as our Lord and Savior, our provider, our protector, our king. Father, I pray that we would see and that it would be real to us in this Christmas season how you care enough for us in the smallest details, just like you did for Jesus. That you watch over us just as you did him. And Father, we say these things and I look for these things because of the prayer that Jesus prayed. He prayed, Father, that we would be one with you just as he was one with you. And that we would know that you love us just as you love him. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see things for what they really are. That we may be a a Jesus people in these last days. Living the Jesus life.
led by the Spirit of God, operating in the power of God to change other people's lives, to bring others to know the risen Lord and Savior. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.